Hi, everyone. This is John Mandrola recording for the Sensible Medicine podcast, and I'm super excited today to have a special guest, Dr. Ben Recht, who's a computer scientist, um, a strong vocal advocate for rationality on social media. And we are going to talk today, and we are going to just sort out the p-value. So, Ben, thank you for coming, and would you just tell the audience who you are, because I'm afraid I would screw it up. Oh, thanks, John. Um, well, I'm not a very rational person. I'm actually a very hot, hot tempered guy, which is why I end up on Twitter. But uh, I found some amazing people on Twitter, including yourself. So, uh, you know, the, my hot headedness sometimes helps. Uh, I'm a professor at UC Berkeley. Uh, I'm in the electrical engineering and computer sciences department. Um, my work is probably closer to applied mathematics. Uh, I do a lot on um, mathematical statistics and um, uh, mathematical optimization and how we apply that to what we call machine learning. Um, but I also more broadly understand statistical decision-making, uh, as a huge part of, uh, my research. And, um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm happy to discuss anything related to statistics. My, um, I'm in a weird part of my career where I kind of decided that most of the stats that I've used in the past, probably I shouldn't have shouldn't have been doing that in the first place. And I'm trying to uh, figure out what that way forward would be to have less statistics in all of our lives. That That's awesome. Now, we're going mm -hmm. to uh, talk about statistics and, and clinical trials in medicine. And we're going to do it at the level of clinicians, not at the level of statisticians. And I got so. interested in a a paper that came out a couple of days before Christmas. So it didn't get a lot of press. It's called The New Look at P-Values for Randomized Clinical Trials by a number of very uh, smart sounding people. And it got me interested in this. And, and we talked about it a little bit on Twitter. But before we talk about anything with statistics, I took my son out to Berkeley. And do you have to drive past all those parking spaces for the Nobel laureates at, at your I, place? I, I walk by them. So I'm close <laughs> enough to campus, I can walk. That is, is that is amazing. How does that yeah. feel? Or are you just used to it? Are you, um, Berkeley's amazing because it is a it's a state institution and it's permanent chaos, and so everything's always feels like it's about to fall apart, either because of a lack of state funding or just you know bad management. Because we're all faculty, we don't know what we're doing, uh, and yet people win Nobel prizes every other day. So something is going right, I guess. But it's a good reminder. It's like somehow amidst the chaos. Good stuff happens. Amazing. Um, all right. So let's start by let's start by just defining what exactly is a p-value. And we have this clinical trial that's testing a drug or a procedure, yeah. and there's a number of events in one arm and a number of events in the other arm. And then they tell us the p-value. What exactly right. is that? Yeah, that's a great and I, I like the way that we just started that because p-values and statistics can be very, very general. But I think for the case of almost every doctor, all you really care about is what do they mean in the context of clinical trials? I think that, um, beyond that, you're probably never going to need it. So in, in the context of a clinical trial, the, the p-value is kind of a number we add to give let ourselves do a thought experiment. And the thought experiment goes like this. In a randomized trial, by definition, I have assigned half of the participants to a treatment at random and half of the, the other half were assigned to the treatments, uh, sorry, to a standard of care, right? So we have half assigned at random to treatment, half assigned at random 
to standard of care. And mm -hmm. we see some outcomes and we look at a fraction of good outcomes in the treatment group and a fraction of good outcomes in the control group. And let's say that we have some miracle drug and it looks like the treatment was much more effective than standard of care. So how can we evaluate what that means? Because it's quite possible that uh, I just by random choice, put all of the healthy people into the treatment group and all of the unwell people into the standard of care group. Okay. Now I did it at random. And so the question would be, what is the probability that just by my random assignment, I could have had all of the healthy people get assigned to the treatment group? What would that probability be? That is the p-value. And so if you see a p-value that says 0.05, that would mean that if I were just, just take random, um, I would just take a coin. Now, let's see, let me step back for a second. We can make it very simple for randomized trials. I, okay. want, I want to make sure I can really make this as simple as possible. In randomized trials, let, let's say when we have uh, out, cut and dry outcomes like uh, death, let's just look okay. at death. We can now just, just look at the number of deaths in the treatment group and the number of deaths in the control group. Okay. These, these are our, our adverse outcomes. Um, so let's say there's six in the treatment group and four in the control group. The p-value is saying, what would be the probability that I flipped 10 coins and saw six heads and four tails? That's that's what the p-value would be. That's that's all that's all it's telling you. Now, what's what's interesting, and I think what makes this challenging, is this we don't really have a lot of intuition for coin flips. So if you have six heads and four tails, that happens a lot. But having 60 heads and 40 tails, right? This is the same proportion. That happens almost never. Right. And so it's like the, now the question, and what makes the trials really complicated, and which we'll get into our story later is you want to make sure you have enough events such that you're in much closer to a 60-40 situation than a 6-4 situation. And that's what goes into a trial design. Right. So that that I think you're leading at is the power of the trial. That's right. So, but, but before we even get to that, when a doctor reads a trial and there's yeah. just a handful of deaths in the treatment arm and uh, many more deaths in the uh, control arm, and you look at that and you look at how many people were in the trial and it looks like, you know, there's a hundred or 200 or maybe a thousand. You're like, man, that looks real. And it, it, and it looks surprising um, uh, if there was no difference. And so that's where, you know, I've always taught to define the p-value is if there was no difference, the null hypothesis is true, so to speak, in the statistics, if there was no difference and we saw these results we're pretty surprised and Correct. that's the is that a, a good way to think about the p-value that is exactly the right way to think about it i think the the thing that makes the p-value tricky is that for some of our most impressive interventions which you know medicine to me what makes medicine so fascinating and i've been spending a lot of time over the past few years getting more involved in um medical research um it's like the only human facing science that i know of where you'll consistently find these things that really work like political science doesn't get this. Economics this... doesn't get this. Every once in a while you get penicillin. Like, you know, not they're not common, but every once in a while you get penicillin, you get Gleevec, you get these things that are cures. And those are remarkable. And of course, I don't know what the p-value is in either, like there was no clinical trial for penicillin 
Right. You didn't, you didn't need a p-value. Right. You didn't need it. Now, what's, what's fascinating is that only a couple of years later, the first clinical trial, so only a couple of years after the intervention of penicillin, did we actually do the first randomized clinical trial in medicine. And that was for streptomycin to treat tuberculosis. And it just turns out that streptomycin is not a very good treatment for tuberculosis. So the, actually the p-value in that trial was, it, you know, I think it was for those uh, who are listening, you know, who know what these numbers are, it was around 0.01, which is fine. That's, you know, that's better than we'll see in a lot of trials, but it was not a very strong effect. And in fact, streptomycin was not a very good treatment for tuberculosis. You could have a trial that doesn't have enough patients and, yes. and you could have this treatment difference, whatever, let's say it's a 30% reduction or 40% reduction. You, if you had a small number of patients, you, you could have this treatment difference, but because there's not that many coin tosses or not that many patients, then you, you, that might be due to just random chance. And if you did it again, uh, you, you might find a much less effect. I think, I think the hard part with the p-value is that it's, it's like, that's what you just said is correct, but it's just hard. It's hard for me to make a, you know, I, I can't put too much. I don't want to put too much weight on that one particular part of the trial. Why not? Right? I, I think it's important to have it. At, okay. So I think it's important to have this distinction of um, a measure of surprise. Okay. But I don't want it to be like, you know, I think it's a little bit just too hard to like, deeply interpret it. I feel like it's interesting to me going back through the history of clinical trials. So much of the clinical trial infrastructure from the beginning was pushed um, as a regulatory mechanism, not as a like investigatory mechanism. A lot of right. times we think, okay, we're going to do an experiment because that's how scientists learn. But the history of the clinical trial is comes out of the rise of the FDA, honestly. Um, the FDA was founded in 1938 um, after a, at this crazy uh, early antibiotic, which I can never pronounce the name. Actually, I can, if you give me a sec, I could find the name of this early antibiotic. Uh, it's called sulfenolamide. Okay. It predates penicillin by about a decade, but it was also had high toxicity. And after uh, an early, an early batch killed like a hundred people. And Congress reacted by like adding to the food and um, the Food and Drug Act. They kind of created this FDA to actually look at drugs. And I think that the thing that's hard to appreciate for for all of us now is that you know before I don't know 1930, there weren't any drugs. There were these weird treatments and elixirs and potions, but the stuff that we use today, like you know Benadryl and uh, ibuprofen and you know and all the other cancer drugs, whatever we want to add to that, that's all. That's all post-1930 and definitely like it blew up after World War II. So the FDA is kind of coming in at the beginning saying, look, you have these things. They clearly do amazing things, but they can also be very dangerous. And so we need some kind of oversight just to see like, do these drugs actually do what people are, what, what you're telling us? And so I think trials very much from the beginning started as a regulatory mechanism. Are these safe? Are they efficacious? Um, and but we yeah, go ahead. But when we were talking before the podcast, you said you were a fan of two things, and not not sort of general statistics, but more you were a fan of RCTs and p values. Mm -hmm. And explain, I am. I I'm sort of of the of the value. I'm sort of of the view, and I get beat up a little bit this uh, for this mm -hmm. on Twitter. Is that 
I mean, if we want to know things in medicine, we can't so much look back at non-random comparisons because there's so many uh, confounders. But when we randomize, when we let the choice of treatment be random, and we and we right. have a we have a fair trial, and and the model is good, um, right. uh, then we can really make a judgment uh, on this. And and I think, I I think it, I think it's complicated because I don't know. Tell me, I, I don't, don't I don't want to be. I'm I'm gonna be. Don't let me be too presumptuous here. I just want to like maybe push back a little bit about like how medical practice works. I don't think Please. any doctor. I don't think any doctor consults like the Cochrane record every time a patient comes in, right? They go in and they look somebody up in the all of their different meta-analyses and read those and something like that. There's a there's a whole art um to to care and 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 treatment of of people, right? And it's complicated how we actually make decisions about care. Uh it's never as systematic as we'd like. So I, I just want to put first of all, like the way that doctors learn it's complicated. And I don't think that the alternative to trials for most doctors are observational studies. I think there's, you know, case series still matter. Grand rounds still matter. Talking to your other doctors still matter. Listening to your patients still matters, right? There's all this other stuff that comes in. It's true. I, I, well, it's, it's true. And it's true, but I want to, uh, there's two comments to that. One is that, yes, uh, just this week, I said to a patient, I'll just say Mrs. Smith, I said, there were no Mrs. Smiths in trials. We don't have any evidence to tell me what to do with your situation. However, that's right. so that's one. But on the other hand, a, a lot of what we do um, is informed by trials and, and trials give that's us a, a general effect of, of this drug or that drug. For instance, you know, when I, I always I've told this story a couple of times, but when I started cardiology, we were we were using antiarrhythmic drugs after heart attacks to suppress arrhythmia. And and that was because observational studies had shown that these arrhythmias mm. are, are really bad. So we had drugs that suppress them and the consensus mm. was that we should. And then somebody did a randomized trial and showed that we were we were killing patients by doing yeah. this. And so I think that um, I think that clinical trials give us a sense of um, an average effect and, and, and what we should do with uh, these especially new therapies. Um, but it it's difficult to algorithmically or robotically apply it to every patient. And that's where, you know, the role of the physician comes in. But we want to talk about, we, we want to talk about why do you think random randomization and randomized trials, why are you such a fan? Yeah. Well, p partially, I think that having a good regulatory mechanism that we can agree upon, even if it's imperfect, is valuable. And so, so um, like you said, Randomized trials don't tell us anything about uh, Mrs. Smith. They can't. They can't, unfortunately, tell us about Mrs. Smith. But they could tell us about, you know, our hospital practice, and they could tell us about our national practice. Can um, they tell us about if we treated one thousand Mrs. Smiths, uh, what would happen? That they're at least at least that's a little bit more plausible, right? So, like that. I mean, even there, you could be a real statistical skeptic and say it doesn't even tell us that. I feel like that's being a little bit too, too extreme. But I think that what it's important to be able to have when you have, especially especially with drugs, you know, it's important to be able to say, look, we ran a large trial and at least the drug isn't toxic. That would be a nice baseline. No one died. You know, there was the adverse effect profile wasn't terrible. That's useful. And, and randomized trials get you that. And so I think these regulatory things do matter because we've seen, I mean, again, there's unfortunately, you know, 
even with the best intentions, certain treatments can be harmful. I mean, every treatment has some risk associated with it. We know this. So having some system in place, I find very, very helpful and useful. But um, that I want to I want to go right. That's a great lead into where I want to go back to the p value and this surprise yeah. value. So we have a yeah. clinical trial that shows that there's 20 adverse effects in one arm and 10 in the other, and you're like, yeah. shit, that's double. Yeah. But then the p value or the surprise value will be able to calculate how you know whether that's just whether whether that's that's surprising, right? 2010 is probably, that's pretty, that seems bad to me. I would have to think about the number, but 2010 is already pretty bad. It was when oh, you're in this regime of like, of like, you know, I, I I can't do them in my head. I think that's the other problem. One of my biggest problems I have with the p-values, even though I believe in them, I can't remember in my head what actually should be surprising if you just give me the numbers. Should 2010 be surprising? I know 200, 100, very surprising. That'd be okay. terrible. Okay. Right. Two, what? one. But That's doesn't nothing. but okay two one twenty ten but doesn't it depend on how many people are in the trial exactly That's I think the thing that's tricky So like I could tell you that two one should not be surprising I could tell you that two hundred one hundred that should be very surprising twenty ten the problem so this actually brings me to one of my biggest points is like I don't know where that line of surprise really should be like if if we if we were lived in an ideal world we'd always be doing trials where it would be 2100 and we would have definitive very definitive answers about what's happening um uh, but there are obviously ethical concerns there because if there's potential we want to have the trial as big as possible as or let's put it this way as small as possible so that we can learn what we want to learn so that comes into right? how how the, okay this is where i want to ask yeah as a just keeping the math basic. But when I was in medical school at the University of Connecticut, we didn't have grades, so to speak. We didn't get A, Bs, and Cs. We got uh, Z scores. And this was my first introduction to Z scores. Wow. And so so we got... Uh, uh, I love the, that. The, I studied like crazy for the first biochem test. And I got like a Z score of like positive 2.4. And yeah. I, was, I was like, what the hell does that mean? And it turns out Pretty that it's really good. And then I thought, yeah, really well... Good. There's no reason to be much over zero, right? Yeah. No. Um, and so how do mathematically just, I mean, this this leads into the difference between 20 and 10, two and one and, and 200, 100. How do you, how, how do you um, uh, calculate it and what actually is it? And what is it in relation to the, to the standard deviation or Z-score? Yeah. Okay. With the Z-score or the P-value? Okay. What's the difference? Yeah. Good. So I love, Z-scores are, are interesting. Um, and in some ways I, I feel like they would be more useful, except that they're even there, I feel like I'm going to, it's going to get a little bit complicated. So, um, every, I think most, hopefully listeners will have heard of the bell curve. Okay. Normal um, distribution, the normal distribution, which for lots of, um, if you collect a lot of data and you plot it, as a histogram, more often than not, you see a bell curve. So, for example, you know the the, the heights of people look like a bell curve, um, and the bell curve will have a mean, which is you know the the average, and then it has something called a standard deviation, which measures its width. And what the z score is saying: how many standard deviations are you from the mean? So, if it's like so, my biochem test, 
it was like my chem test. chem test, there's 200 people in the class and most right. people are getting, you know, whatever, a 70, 71%. And if you yeah. score 71%, your, your, your standard deviation is zero or your, is your Z score yeah, your zero? Your Z score is zero because how far away are you in right. from the mean measured right. in terms of the standard deviation? Right. Now, if you're like, John, you got a 2.4 that that's like, so it sounds like not that big. You're 2.4 standard deviations away from the mean, but the, if if everybody in your class was actually a normally distributed, if their score was actually a normally distributed random variable, which it isn't, but if it was, uh, then you would have been better than like 97% of the class, I think. Right. Uh, which is pretty good. Well, it was good. I was a bio, I was a biochemistry major in college and I was scared as heck as medical school. So I studied like crazy, but but so the point is, is that now how does that relate? So you have an average, you have a median, yeah. you have a or a mean, the mean, sorry, you have, mean, a, yeah. you have an average and you have this standard deviation, which is the, right. you know, the, how far are you away from the mean? And then you have these tails. And yeah. then how does that relate to the p-value? Okay. So the p-value is what's the probability of landing in the tail from that particular value? So we're at a particular value. Uh, where, like you said, 2.4 standard deviations away from the mean. What's the p-value? It's the probability of landing somewhere in the tail beyond that. Um, and so for your 2.4, I think it's about, the p-value would be about 0.03. And and isn't the, so the, the p-value, uh, the, the tails, what this 1.96, which is uh, minus 1.96, that's, right. that's about two standard deviations. <laughs> That's right. 1.96 instead of two. Yeah, you right. could round it to two, right? So that's yeah. that. That's uh, if you're one point, your Z score is 1.96. Your your two standard deviations away from the mean. Uh, that it's actually a little complicated for that one. So that means that you're you could also have the worst people in the class. We're gonna include them together. The best okay. people in the class and the worst people in the class uh, outside that 1.96, it will be five percent on in the top and the bottom. So yeah. when you have a clinical trial, yeah. If there was no difference in this treatment, if yeah. this treatment, if the adverse effects which should be the same, if you just made that prior, the chance of being in one of those tail, the chance of being in that tail is pretty low. So pretty if low. you're if you're in that tail, if it calculates right. in that tail, you're like, that's probably an effect. That's probably an effect. And if you repeated the trial again, um, you should get similar results. If there was a true effect. Oof, that I don't know. <laughs> that I don't know. I mean, that's the jump. That's the jump we have to make, which is always the tricky part with with, with uh, evaluating these statistical things. I've, I always find it a little weird. Like we're, I get your intuition and I feel that intuition again. Um, and I'm but that's sure what we there are. No, that's what we want to know for regulatory and for medicine, right? We want to know right. if there's, if there's a real effect, um, right. then it, it's, it's not, it's 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 not just a chance event that that this happened. It's 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 the drug that's doing this, either bad or good. And and if it's what if it's like three standard deviations or four standard deviations? That's if right. it's like point zero 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 one. The something. crazy thing that people don't appreciate. One crazy thing that's hard to appreciate is that, like I said, if you look at the two standard deviations, then the probability of being in the tail is five percent. If you go to three standard deviations, um, I've already forgotten what the percentage is. I know by the time you get to five standard deviations, the probability of being in the tail is less than one in a million. Once you're at five. So, yeah. so it's crazy that like, if you just make trials a little bit bigger so that you could, instead of getting a 
if we had set the threshold as, instead of being two sigma or like you said, 1.96 sigma, we forced everybody to create trials where we'd only be happy if we had five sigma. Uh, at that point, we wouldn't even talk about p-values anymore. We'd talk about other stuff because other things can go wrong in trials. So, <laughs> so why don't, uh, so when we do these clinical trials, um, yeah. uh, this is where, this is where we have to get into like when a clinical trial is done, um, yeah. the investigators are trying to figure out how many events they're going to have That's to right. figure out, to figure out how big it has to be. And I've always had a struggle understand, and they call that power, you know, the power of trial. Right. I, I, I intuitively understand it is you have to have this big trial so that you can, so you can, if there's any true difference, you can, you can detect it. That's but then right. I never can figure out like how exactly um, this power, uh, and it always seems like the trials, it always seems like trials come out a little underpowered in medicine. I know. I, I think they have to. I mean, so, okay, there are a couple of things there about the underpowered. Yeah, talk to One, talk there's this idea There's this idea that you can analyze power after the fact. This is hotly debated about from by statisticians, and I also think it's just a mess. Uh, I don't think you could do that, and I don't think it's fair. Like but you before, said, I think... Before we even get to that, yeah. tell us what does it mean to have... What, is it, what does it yeah. mean when they calculate power? So... Uh, the way I like to think about it is in a trial, you have adverse events. Those are the only things that matter, whether they be death or some kind of like cardiac event or something. That's the only thing that matters. Outcomes. And outcomes, just outcomes. And the so the first thing in a trial is that the outcome, you, you have to have enough people so that the outcomes themselves, there are enough outcomes. Like I said before, when we look at a p-value, the only thing we have to compare is the number of outcomes in in control to the number of outcomes in treatment. Everybody else actually is ignored when we compute the p-value. Everybody who fared well, all good. We only care about bad outcomes. Okay. So you have to build a trial that's large enough such that there is enough bad outcomes in both treatment and control that you could tell the difference as to whether or not treatment is better than control. And that's what's, that's when we do a power calculation, that's what we're trying to do. We have to keep in mind prevalence. Okay. And we have to keep in mind if, uh, how, how large is the difference? Both matter. So we have to say, how long, what do we expect the difference to be? And then what's the prevalence? Now, if we were, again, if we're not being, the, the trade-off again, is we don't want the trial to be too big because that's harmful and wasteful. Uh, but more, I actually think the ethical things are, are important. Like we can't. You, know, you want to only study the you want to study the the minimum amount of patients to get an answer because you're actually experimenting on people. Yeah, you're experimenting on people, so we shouldn't. We want to make that as small as possible. Yeah, and I I often say that if you need to have a million pay people in an experiment in order to measure what you want, probably what you want to measure is useless. That's not a not a valuable contribution. This um, is a really important point. I really want to stop there and yeah, if you have to study a million people, then there's probably such a small difference that it it it's doesn't make any difference. That's right. And so that That's relates right. that that brings me to the that brings me to another point of confusion is the difference between when there's a very, very small p value, meaning it's the the results are very surprising to you. And then how does that relate to clinical trial how does that relate to effect size? Because it's that the surprise value is surprisingly not related or not very related to the effect size, right? There, or there not? Are, well, 
Yeah, they're related, but like you have this annoying factor. Like there's multiple factors that go into it. So their effect size and sample size both play a role. Right. And and Talk your p-value gets that. smaller if the effect size is larger. Your p-value is also smaller if your sample size is larger. So both of them make the p-value smaller. And that's where we get into this bizarre, this bizarre regime where trialists want the study to be as small as possible to detect this large, you know, a, a effect size of some magnitude. And we always get us into this regime because, because of what we're, how we've standardized things as to what we consider surprising. We're always now in a regime um, where the trial is just big enough to get us confused. So I want to do some examples. Yes. In, in some of the uh, cardiac arrest trials where the uh, say these cooling trials where we cool patients yeah. with cardiac arrest, about 50% of the people have a bad outcome, either death or, or disability. And okay. so it's a really high event rate and they can have these big uh, absolute differences like 10, 20%. And the p-value might be uh, 0.04, 0.05. And then I reported on a study uh, on a on a on a study this uh, in a podcast yesterday looking at adverse events after private equity takes over hospitals. And this group looked at four million admissions, and they found a difference in two in ten thousand uh, falls. Like after private equity, there was four per ten thousand, and uh, uh, control hospitals two per ten thousand, and it was highly statistically significant, and it was only two in ten thousand. And yet, you could have a card, you could have a, a a trauma trial, or you know, a cardiac arrest trial that has a twenty percent absolute difference that has a, a non significant p value. And so, is that a good way? I mean, th to me, that seems like a good relationship between sample size and and surprise value and effect size. Yeah, I, I think for for me. Like every time I do this or, or, or think about it or come back to it, I'm just like, when did we decide we were too dumb just to look at numbers in a table? Oh, uh, this is what <laughs> I've been doing my whole life. I, it's like, we could just look at the number of people who are in one group, the number of people who are in the other group, the number of bad events in one and the number of bad events in the other and and then make a judgment call. I don't know. The, the idea that this this math thing does something magical for us is just ridiculous. It no, but wait, everyone. that's crazy because you are a math, you're a computer scientist at UC <clears throat> yeah, Berkeley. You, How could you say this? Because you gave me the numbers. I didn't have to process them twice. I think computer scientists should say you process them as much as you need and no more. Okay. Right. You know, counted them for me. Yeah. But this cool. is what we, this is what I've done. So what about all of these? <laughs> what about like, I follow these statisticians on, on Twitter and then I'll yeah, read so. their papers and um, Andrew Gelman's blog is great, and yeah. and Frank Carroll's stuff that he writes is great, yeah. and Stevenson, and and then but sometimes I get into these papers and I'm just like, holy shit, this is I this is way over my head. I know. But, but as a clinician, I'm looking at table two, which is usually the uh, table three. Well, you look at table one first, of course. The patient characteristics. <laughs> okay, so you you you, but you assume that randomization does pretty good uh, if it's if it's. If it's so good, talk, I just, it's let me, fair. let me just pause yeah. for one sec though. Cause I think that it is interesting. Like, I think that this is one of the really complicated things with table one, uh, is there's always P values in table one, which Wait, I don't but, think you should have, but, but, but tell us what table one is. Table one is the so table one is, a, you're going to have, uh, the, a list of demographic, uh, counts for both the 
treatment group and the control group. So you'll say how many men and women are in each of these? How many, uh, what are the age groups in right. each of these? What are the prior health conditions in each of these? And that's table one. And if table one looks like you're already seeing a large skew between the the two groups. Now, you said a, a second ago, and I just want to repeat it. If you randomize, there's no worry. But for me, table one is, are we sure they randomized? Yes, because there was a there was a anesthesiologist in the coast of England who I can't remember his name, but he did this work showing that he can sometimes look at table one and prove that there wasn't wasn't a, a random allocation. And I can't remember how he did it. But but and, and I think Stephen Sen says that just because it's random doesn't mean there aren't going to be some baseline differences. Right. That's uh, right. Uh, but, but you should be worried. Sometimes there are huge differences. And then you're like, that's. You know, you it should if you see if you're surprised by table one, you should be skeptical. And at least I think one of the biggest problems I have with the way we are allowed to report on medical evidence is that you can never go back and actually look at the trial records. You right. just get what's in the New England Journal, and you just have to like trust them. I think that's actually something that medicine would be better off if we could figure out a way to get a little bit deeper in the data that we're reporting on. Yeah, I've talked about open data. In fact, though, I did read an editorial in New England Journal just a week ago saying that NIH is now going to uh, shorten the time that uh, these databases, that these mm -hmm. databases are open. And it really, some of that comes up in the, uh, in the thrombolysis for stroke uh, situation. But anyways, okay, table one, There's you table assume one. that randomization has randomized has balanced uh, the, the known characteristics and also the unknown characteristics. And then we get to table two, uh, which is the results of the main outcomes. And we look at it, wow, there's less in the treatment arm. It looks good. But then we have a p-value that is uh, looking at the surprise value of it. And then I want to ask you, then when the other thing we have in table two is the confidence interval. So let's yeah. say there's a 20% reduction uh, the let's say it's a hazard ratio is 0 0.80, and then the confidence interval goes from like I don't know 0 0.61 to 1.01, and then um, then we're like oh shit. And I in my mind, my dumb mind, I just draw a normal distribution with you know like uh, one tail at 0 0.6 and the other tail at 1.01, and I think most of that is in you know most of that. If we repeated this, we would we would be within. Uh, below one, but maybe that's not the right thinking about it. Confidence intervals are really challenging. Um, and I go back and forth because I, and, and one, on the one hand, I'm kind of sympathetic to the idea that you would report them and that those are somehow more valuable than the p-value itself. Um, but explaining them is much harder because the coin flip that now I have to, I well, maybe I just haven't got to this level of enlightenment net yet. But I feel like when I try to explain what a confidence interval is, I need a lot more words. But the statisticians um, are really pointed about not using the point estimate because a point estimate right. is just one calculation. That's correct. And, and that's I correct. sort of have this view of the confidence interval is that nebulously that that if we repeated this trial uh, a, a thousand times, that there's a cert, there's a good chance that the actual effect size would be within that confidence interval. No, I mean, yeah, so let me let me see if I can say it because it's a little weird, right? So yeah. you first of all have to have this first hypothetical model, which is honestly, I mean, this is kind of what we're doing when we're doing randomized trials, but I feel like it's a little idealized. And in that hypothetical model, when Mrs. Smith comes into your trial, 
if you give her treatment, she's going to have one outcome. If you give her control, she's going to have another outcome. And we only assign her to one. Okay. So I could make a table, which has all the people in the trial. And I could have their outcome under control. And I could have their outcome under treatment. And what we can imagine what a trial is doing is I'm just picking one of the two rows for every patient. Do I get one? Do I get the other? So I have all of these blank spots that are filled off. And what the confidence interval is trying to figure out is like, what could those blank spots be? What possibly could be in those blank spots? Okay. And so that's, that's what it's trying to figure out because what the, what the estimate is of is if I could actually open up all of the boxes and see the two worlds, I could see the world for Mrs. Smith when she got the treatment. I could see the world for Mrs. Smith when she didn't get the treatment. That I could take that entire study group and look at the number of outcomes under treatment and the entire study group and look at the number of outcomes under standard of care and compare those numbers. That's what I want to compare, but I don't get to see that. I get to see this random slice. The random the slice is the point estimate. Yeah, the point as the point estimate, which so, is be, and it's an estimate because I can't see every single entry. I can't see every outcome. I only see half the outcomes. What? I see half of the outcomes in treatment. I see half of the outcomes in control. And I would like to guess what's a rough range on what the outcomes would be if I could see all of the outcomes in treatment and all of the outcomes in control. Why is it that when you have a smaller trial? the conference intervals are wider. Yeah. And when you have a bigger trial, the conference intervals are narrower. Um, and does that have to do with power? It, 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 yeah, it's very much related to power. It's the kind of the same thing. Like if you have, um, I'm just trying to think about the right way to, to th this is again, the the law of large numbers or the the kind of the manifestation of the, the normal distribution is like, as you get more and more data uh, about a particular piece of information, your uncertainty about that data goes down. So even though, uh, let's just put it this way, seeing half of the outcomes in a trial that's 500,000 people is much more informative than seeing half of the outcomes in a trial of five people. And that's why I guess they get narrower. It's because you're seeing half, but half of a bigger and bigger number. Okay. Um, and that's why those that's why the confidence intervals also get smaller for the exact same reasons. It's like if I flip more coins uh, and I have a I have a coin and I want to know is I just let's say I just I have a coin, I want to know does heads come up more often than tails? Okay. Okay. I have to you know the more I flip the coin, the more certain I am about whether or not it's a fair. Let me ask you another uh another question about this. What happens when the trial has a average effect in the two treatment arms and there's a calculation of those confidence intervals and the surprise value the p value and then people say that well there was no difference overall but when we looked at this subgroup there we did find a difference so a patient subgroup uh did better um and there's a very famous trial in my field that I know very well, it's called the Danish trial. And the Danish trial took patients with cardiomyopathy, not due to coronary disease, non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, and they randomized patients to a defibrillator or just standard of care. And standard of care was quite good. And it was absolutely no difference. And it was very shocking to our field because defibrillators have been shown beneficial previously. And But then they looked at subgroups and they said for younger patients in under this age, there was the hazard ratio was highly significant. And for older patients, it was not effective and in fact, it trended towards harm. 
And so that has been interpreted as a plausible subgroup. Um, like there was a group of patients that did better versus not, but then many, many cardiac trials, cardiology trials have this deal where they look at different subgroups and try and find uh, a, a subgroup of a patient uh, of a population. Yeah. And what do you, uh, what do you, how would you explain that? So, uh, the hard, yeah, this is the hard part with, uh, this is the hard part where, with, with statistics about like, where do you draw lines? Because, you know, you'll see patterns wherever you start looking for them. And the subgroups, the issue with these subgroup analyses is that if you look at enough subgroups, you're guaranteed to find a large and surprising effect. But why is uh, that? So it's because, you know, once, once the coins have been flipped on the table, I could kind of like rearrange them lots of different ways. So I had to, you know, I had all these different coins and I could say, well, you know, I had a hundred in this arm and a hundred in that arm. But, you know, if I look a little carefully only at people who are Gemini and also blonde haired, then, you know, there's all, there's 20 of uh, it, uh, bad events in that group and then 10 in the treatment group. You know, because you can move the coins around and kind of look at these different parts of the windows, you're, 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 you're starting to, um, you, you could trick yourself into seeing patterns that aren't, weren't there. Did you um, use the astrology sign on purpose because yes, of our famous that's, example? That's, that's the best example. Um, you should tell it. us that example. So, I know, so, the, I, so initially there was a trial. So, so I know this has gone out of fashion, but there was uh, aspirin used to be um, prescribed as a prophylactic to prevent. Uh, after MI. After MI, right? Aspirin, yes. aspirin was a. It's still used after MI, right? Oh, it's still used after MI. I guess yeah. it went a little bit more broadly. But so in that initial trial, which was done in the UK, um, in order to get it published in the Lancet, the the, the editors demanded subgroup analyses or the oh, reviewers. Oh, oh. Somebody was asking for subgroup analyses in this trial. So and aspirin was beneficial. Aspirin was yes. beneficial, but they wanted to specifically know if it was which patients did better, it, especially better. Right. So they were. this is what they were hoping for is like, well, can now we explore and see if there's some subpopulation? And Richard Petto, who is a, a um, hardcore medical statistician and was this medical statistician associated with this trial, you know, was he's like, you can't have these subgroup analyses kill people. You're going to see stuff that's not there. And they push back. And so he's like, fine. And he created hundreds of comparisons and gave them all to The Lancet and actually got them published including, uh, and, and this, the group that they found, I think benefited or it had no benefit perhaps was, uh, a particular Zodiac sign. Um, yeah, I, there was, there was, uh, there was, a, a strong, there was a strong subgroup interaction with certain astrological signs. And I, I don't know if they did a, a P value for the interaction, but it was highly positive. And yeah, it, it was, it was a beautiful example of showing that if you do enough subgroup analyses of these trials, that you can get these spurious signals. Yeah, and and the problem is you could just keep that that once the coins are flipped, if you keep looking at them, eventually you could find a slice and dice where they're uneven. You know, even if you had fair coins, because they're just on the table now, I can start playing around, and eventually you're going to find that split. Um, but so, the problem in medicine is that there are actually sometimes heterogeneous treatment no. effects, and and that's I like agree. a that's like a big that's a big word heterogeneous treatment effects just for saying that. In a population of, you know, normal, regular 70 kilogram people, there are people with certain characteristics 
that may benefit more or less from a treatment. And this is kind of what we, this is kind of what we do in the office. Right. And I think that like, I just think maybe my, my point is just that the trials can only tell us so much. And I think that that's okay. You know, there's not going to be some perfect solution to um, solving medicine. Um, it's not like if we just did more trials more rigorously, we'd have a solution. It kind of comes back to my initial point. I think trials have an important place. In particular, if we're going to make something standard of care and kind of force people to do it, or at least really strongly encourage people to do it, you better have a lot of evidence showing that this is not only effective, but safe. All right. Um, but That's I a great I, comment to go back to the beginning and then close yeah, this up. We sure. st I started and I got interested with this ab about the study in, in New England Journal of Evidence, uh, New England Evidence, where they looked at all these p-values in the Cochrane Review. And, and the gist of it that I got from them was that in general, when there's a p-value in a clinical trial, when you go back and compare it to all these trials, we typically, the p-value the is usually overestimates the degree of certainty. And if you try to replicate that, uh, theoretically, it, it's a small chance that it would replicate. And what I took from this, this paper was that p-values are often overestimated in, in clinical trials. And how it sounds to me from listening to you that you feel similarly uh, about this. That they're overestimated. That that the, the standard p value that we read in a clinical trial is maybe we should maybe if we repeated it it wouldn't be as impressive. I don't I don't know that I agree with that. I think replicating trials is much harder than people make it out to be. Okay. Because and and, and I think this is another part of reality that we just have to come to terms with that the people in one center are going to be different than the people in another center. The doctors are going to be different in one a different center. Standard of care is going to be slightly different. So I think that we ask too much for these things to be perfect. I, I think having science has never been perfectly replicable. And yet we can make progress just by, you know, just like no two patients are the same, no two trials are the same, but we're good at synthesizing information and making pretty reasonable decisions. So I, I feel like the that particular paper, which yes. we didn't even talk about what's in there, I, I feel like it's focusing on this one small element that's just like not even a not important. And Why? In fact, that like the important part that we're missing is like all the stuff that you said. It's like, <clears throat> of course, the thing like there's this argument that they're not going to be publishing trials that are, you know, not significant enough or this, that, and the other thing. And maybe that's a problem. But I feel like it's the least of our issues. I think that this is the the there are all sorts of other weird biases and quirks that go into these trials changing endpoints on the fly or like you know like uh uh presenting like you said exploratory evidence or like there are all these other things that happen that or, are far more concerning to me than i see so you're more biased. concerned about you're more concerned about uh trials that screen 3000 to enroll 300 so you're selecting patients that could um, be bad uh, you're more uh, you're worried about composite endpoints where you're putting in a really soft endpoint along with uh, along with mortality. Right. Um, I mean, so, so one of my favorite examples, John, I mean, I know I, you do more cardiology, but like uh, I, I've been reading tons of trials on cancer and man, I no one has ever been able to tell me what progression free survival really means. Yeah. Vinay talks about this where it's just yeah. a difference on a CAT scan. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like we could talk for hours on this because I have so many. Every time you say something, I have another. I have another question, and I'm really happy that we got this. We've been going on for a little under an hour, and I I think this is great. Ben, thanks so much for talking with us, and maybe maybe uh, maybe we could even uh, do some more of this. And I really think everybody should follow you on Twitter. What exactly is your handle? Uh, my my handle is a funny way of writing my name. So my name is Ben Recht, and on Twitter it's B E E N W R E K T. I should have made something a little bit easier. But I also uh, I've been spending less time on Twitter. I've been doing a lot more blogging on Substack. Okay, tell uh, us. My, my Substack is argmin a r g m i n dot net, um, and I blog about all sorts of things. Sometimes it's a little technical in my field, but I've been trying to make it. A lot of them are not that technical and um i can wait what is um, it again rg what is it arg okay m-i-n what does that arg mean min. uh in, in math the argmin is the uh the location of the minimum so i it was just a silly math joke <laughs> all right i found it argmin excellent yeah. well thank you so much excellent yeah, thank you john all right